We are back in the book of Judges this morning. <clears throat> Judges chapter 16. And most of you know that I grew up in the Chicago area. You might be aware that Chicago has a nickname. It's called the Windy City. And the Windy City is not so called because of the physical wind that exists. It, it is a little bit of a blustery city, but it is, it is not, that's not the origin of that nickname, uh, the Windy City. It's, it, Chicago's not even the windiest city in America. There's a couple other cities that have it beat in that regard. But Chicago is given that nickname for another reason, and I found this on the web this week. This is something I've known for years, but I'm going to read what I read this week on the internet. Of course, if it's on the internet, you know it's true. <laughs> but this is something that is known, well known within the city of Chicago for why it is called the Windy City. This is from a website, quote, one of the first known instances of Chicago's Windy City nickname came from a New York Sun reporter named Charles A. Dana in 1893, who editorialized that the city's politicians were, quote, full of hot air, end quote. Chicago and New York were in a head-to-head competition at the time to host the next World's Fair, and Chicago's, quote, windbag advocates were not shy about campaigning for their hometown in order to win. Despite Dana's best efforts to discredit Chicago as a windy city, the, 19, the 1893 World's Fair was held in Illinois and not in New York. But even before the World's Fair debate, there were other published instances of the Windy City nickname. The, city, the Cincinnati Inquirer used the term in 1876 in reference to a tornado that blew through the city, while also capitalizing on the term's double meaning to highlight the local speakers who were, quote, full of wind. So this nickname, which which has been proven to be accurate over the years, it it speaks of the the local politicians as they're there in the city, and they're always always full of their hot air, they're blowing their, their spit in their stories as they go about their campaign, they're telling their stories, they're making all these promises, and of course many of them are are false promises not coming together. But there's also no shortage of those individu- individuals who are able to use their speech to, to spin any event, any, any circumstances, to try to use it for their own advantage. They're able to blow their hot air. They're able to spin things in such a way that, that they make whatever circumstances are going on in the city, making it try to look favorably towards them and towards their position. They are masters of the spin. And that is how Chicago got the nickname the Windy City. It has to do with the politicians and their spin. Well, in many ways, as we've moved through the book of Judges, I've, I've kind of gotten a, a little bit of a feeling similar, a similar thing has taken place with many of the characters of the book of Judges. Oftentimes when the book of Judges is, is taught in, many, in either Sunday school or children's church or things of that nature, The characters are often sanitized of all of their rough edges, and the stories are spun in such a way that the characters end up becoming these giants and these heroes of the faith. But the truth is that there are many details that would seem to be embarrassing details. But in order to avoid those, we try to shine the spotlight onto the things that are a little bit more comfortable to look at so we don't feel the weight of what is happening through the book. As a result, we were often told, hey, you need to be like Gideon in this way or that, or, or just like Ehud overcame his hurdles, you must be creative in overcoming yours. 
So we resort to moralizing or allegorizing the text or typologizing the text and attempt to deal with the difficult material to try to avoid and skirt over those difficult things that is in front of us in the text. These approaches often overlook what the original author and what the Holy Spirit intended for us to grasp and intended us for us to see within this book. So we, we, we don't want to get sidetracked by those approaches. We don't want to go down that road. Oftentimes we, we can be tempted to be embarrassed by what we see, but in the book of Judges, it's exactly the point. Judges is an embarrassing book for God's people. These are the only people on earth who had the written Word of God. These are the only people who had the revelation of God. They were the Israelites, the only people with whom God had entered into this special covenant with them to make them His own possession. And yet, failure to teach what God has said to the successive generations, failure to embrace what the parents perhaps might have been teaching, or maybe a sad combination of failure of the parents and the failure of the children as they grew up led to generational decay and the people began to look more and more like the Canaanite world around them instead of being the holy people that they were called to be. And so we see not just the cycle of the judges as it goes round and round, but the downward spiral as the people not merely drifted from God and His Word, but many times often seem to run headlong opposite, the, the running away from the truth, what God has said in His world, running toward the false idols of the world, thinking that perhaps there is something of benefit within those. And God delivered His people into the hands of their enemies to show them their need for Him, and time and time again they would cry out for help. God would raise up a judge, a deliverer to rescue His people. But as the people grew more and more corrupt, eventually even the judges themselves did not escape this downward trend. And they too became more and more like the Canaanite leaders rather than those chosen by God. And even these judges were thus insufficient to lead the people. So round and round the cycle goes. From safety to sin to suffering to supplication to salvation, back to safety again, only to come back round to sin once more. As we've moved through this book, we've discussed time and time again how the author wants us to come face to face with our own depravity, how this, this really shows us us. This shows us the condition of our own sinful hearts. This is where the, the, our hearts will lead us if, if we are left to our own devices, if we stray from the very God who has made us and His Word, how He has commanded us to be living, the One who has, who has made us, who chose us, who saves us, who loves us, and who cares for us. When we stray from that, this is where we are left. We have seen how we are insufficient saviors of ourselves and that we need a Savior. We need the Savior, and this book directs us towards the need for Jesus Christ. Well, that continues to be true with the life of Samson. Samson is another man that we often make out to be a hero, and in reality, he's a man of many weaknesses. 
This week I was reading a commentary that interacted with the Jewish Talmud and, the, and other rabbinic writings as they're dealing with the, the life and the story of Samson. And, and time and time again, these writings, these Jewish writers were seeking to, to soften the difficult aspects of the life of Samson because they, they viewed Samson as just this, this tremendous character uh, and an individual as just tremendous example of, of faith and with all these troubling details, they, they would try to soften or, or try to spin all these things, just like those Chicago politicians would try to, to skirt different issues by spinning things. These, these rabbinic writers were seeming to try to do the same thing, to soften the troubling details of Samson's life. But Samson's life is anything but clean. Is anything but but a, but a, but, an, but an exemplary individual. This is a man guided by his own desires. We saw before how he insisted upon marrying this, this Philistine woman because why? She is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. This man is a self-directed individual. He has neglected and he has broken his Nazarite vow on several occasions to satisfy either his own physical hunger or to satisfy his own personal desire for revenge over circumstances within his life. And at every turn, at every turn in the life of Samson, we see a man looking out for his own interests rather than the interests of others, which is the exact opposite of what God would have for His people. Well, as we continue in the life of Samson today, we're going to wrap up the life of Samson, go through the chapter 16 of this book Sadly, we will see more of the same within the life of Samson. As we introduced the story of Samson, we noted how his life seems to revolve around relationships with key women in his life. First, it was his mother, then it was his Philistine wife, and today we'll see a brief incident with a Philistine prostitute and finally, finally the infamous Delilah. Samson is a man who is self-directed, often lauded for his strength. But in reality, he is a weak man. His self-directed life ultimately ends up being his own undoing. And what we see today are three more areas of weakness in the life of Samson. And yet, we still find God at work in the midst of his life. We're going to examine the life of uh, the end of Samson's life under three major headings today. First, we see Samson's weakness in self-temptation. Second, his weakness in self-betrayal. And finally, his weakness in self-destruction. First, let's, let's pick things up in Judges chapter 16, verse 1, where we see his weakness in self-temptation. Judges 16, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place, and they set an ambush for him all night long in the, at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts. He pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. First, once again, we see that Samson is a man directed by his own lusts and desires. 
He goes to Gaza, though the reason for his trip is, is unclear, it's unknown, but Gaza is deep in the Philistine territory. Perhaps he, he went there to try to stir up trouble. This is, he's a man that sometimes is often seeming to looking for a fight in many areas. Whatever the reason why he went there, it, he was there, and Samson finds himself in a compromising situation. I think the reality that we have to face is that Samson didn't have to be there. We don't know why he was there. He didn't have to be tempted by this prostitute, but he is a man, again, who is not guided by the Word of God. He is not guided by what the Lord would say, but rather his own way. And so there's a sense in which he leads himself into temptation here and commits an egregious sin. I cannot help but see a warning of application here in this text. How often do we place ourselves in potentially compromising situations. Devices with unbridled internet access can easily lead to inappropriate behavior. Other activities, things that just can be so simple, watching too much of the news can either enrage us or depress us. Engaging with too much social media can feed either our arrogance or our feelings of inadequacy. Being in the wrong place or even just lingering in places that maybe on their own might not be sinful, but they're, but they're leading you right by the door of the prostitute, metaphorically speaking. Are we walking into Gaza with no plan to keep our feet from walking into sin? No plan to prevent our thumbs from scrolling or typing that which is sinful in the sight of God? Solomon warns us in the book of Proverbs... This is Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Samson, being the self-directed man that he was, he chose to, to give in to temptation. His steps carried him into a compromising situation that he did not have to be in, and he never would have had to face that, but he neglected the way of wisdom and chose to engage in this immorality. Well, as the story goes, the people of Gaza, they laid a trap for him, but, but God was gracious in giving him the strength to escape the city unharmed. And, and it really cannot be overstated the, the incredible feat of strength that this is in this text. All right, he, he rips up the gates of the city. These gates could have been as, as wide as 13 or 14 feet wide reinforced by metal bars. He picked them up, carries them on his shoulder. It says he carried it to the top of the hill of Hebron. That is a 40-mile walk traveling from sea level to an elevation of 2,500 feet. And Samson carried this gate on his shoulders. I don't know if you've ever gone from a lower elevation area where and then gone up to a higher elevation area. I experienced this when we uh, went over to uh, Albuquerque as, 
That's actually the same mile height as, uh, as Denver. If you think of the mile high city, it's a higher elevation. Yeah, it's the same elevation. It's actually just even a little bit higher than Denver. Well, when you're there, when you're used to a lower elevation, there's a certain oxygen content of the air, there's a certain environment that you're used to, you get to this higher elevation area and it has an effect upon your stamina. Samson, 40 miles, carries these massive gates of the city upon his shoulder, rising from an elevation up from sea level to 2,500 feet. It's an unparalleled feat of strength, something like, something you might see from a superhero movie, right? This is something like, this is like incredible Hulk-level material. This is what Samson is doing. Of course, this is empowered by the grace and the strength of God within his life. And we, we have to be careful here. We must not interpret God's graciousness here, God's enabling and strengthening of Samson as, as tacit approval for, for Samson's actions. God God clearly wasn't finished with Samson, and so uh, he, he helps him and brings about this escape in his life. But that does not mean that Samson gets a pass for his behavior. And as amazing as this story is, and as incredible as this feat of strength is, as, as Samson carries the gates of the city out 40 miles outside of the city up to the hill, the narrator quickly pivots to the next scene of the story because it seems as though the narrator is really interested in two things. He does want to demonstrate Samson's physical strength, but also his internal weakness. For next, we see Samson's weakness in his own self-betrayal. He is not able to keep himself from the prostitute while he is not able to keep himself from his own self-betrayal. Let's read on in verses 4 and following. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Once again, we find Samson, who is drawn in by these foreign women. You know, some have speculated that, that Delilah might be a prostitute herself. It's a possibility. The text doesn't directly say that explicitly. Uh, the text also doesn't specify even that she's a Philistine woman, but uh, it's an inference that we gather from the fact of her, from her location and the fact that the Philistine lords are coming to her. In any case... The lords of the Philistines, they use Delilah to seek out what is the source of Samson's, Samson's strength. They have been embarrassed by him far too many times, and they're tired of dealing with him, and they just want it all to end. And so they find an opportunity with Delilah and seek out the source. And this leads to several rounds of Delilah and Samson going back and forth, and Delilah wearing down Samson, trying to bring about and and discern the truth from him. And Samson is going to offer several lies, but but in each lie that he gives, there's maybe a little hint of truth within there, or at least a hint of what the truth really is. Let's look at verses 7 and following. Samson said to her, 
Well, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Well, then the lords of the Philistines brought to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with him. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. You know, the word for bowstrings in this text is a word that often refers to the tendons of an animal. And that actually might be what is referenced here, the tendons of an animal. It's, if this is the case, if these are fresh animal tendons that have never been dried, and tendons are used for a variety of purposes, well, if this is what it's referring to, it would have been wrong for Samson to engage with these things because of his Nazarite vow, preventing him from touching the body of anything dead. He says seven fresh bowstrings or seven fresh animal tendons. This is a This may be a hint towards what the truth actually is, as we'll see in a few verses. But for now, let's continue on and see the next cycle that goes through as as Delilah continues to try to wear down Samson, verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took the ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes of his arms like a thread. These ropes may be another another hint towards uh, the truth. Since they were new, they would never come into contact with anything unclean. And so in contrast to the animal tendons that may have been used already moving in a direction towards hinting that the Nazarite vow is the key to understanding where uh, Samson's strength may be derived. But let's continue to read on verse 13. Then Delilah said to Samson, "'Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound.' And he said to her, "'Well, if you weave the seven locks of my head,' there's that connection with the seven bowstrings, the seven locks of my head, with the web, and fasten it with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So, while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom from the web, and the web. Once again, we might be inching closer to the truth. He's, he's used these different things, and now he has arrived at his hair, and his hair is the key. But once again, he does not give the full truth. He keeps giving hints. He keeps dancing around the truth while Delilah continues to wear him down, and so we see in verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, 
a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. We see he finally gives in. She wears him down day after day, urging him, and it says his soul was vexed to death. Tired of hearing these entreaties, tired of of hearing her say this time after time after time again, he finally gives in and shares his secrets. Friends, I think we can take another warning from this story here. So often this is how, how sin works. Some temptations are so overwhelming that we are better off not even putting ourselves within the reach of it. Right, this, that's the concept of, of that passage from Proverbs we read earlier. Don't even walk down her street. Some sins don't tempt us so much in the beginning, but over time they begin to wear us down until we finally give in. If we don't remove ourselves from the situation while we can, our resolve is weakened over time. You know, I don't know why Samson was, you know, as you read this text, it's just like, Samson, how dull can you be? Like, can't you see what she's doing? Like, every time you tell her, oh, this is how I can be bound, she tries the thing. Like, you get a hint here, dude. Like, this, what, what are you doing? And we also know that this isn't the first time that he's been worn down by a Philistine woman in order to share his secrets. We saw that back in the previous chapters, how he had this riddle, and his, his wife wore him down to find the answer of the riddle, and eventually he gave in. But he does finally tell the truth, and so we read the result in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, Oh, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And that verse 20 is just devastating words. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Of course, in the end, it was never his hair, truly, that was the source of his strength. It was never the Nazarite vow in itself. It was the Lord that was strengthening him. It was the Lord that had given him his power. In the previous times, we see that the Spirit would rush upon him, the Spirit would strengthen him and give him the strength that he needed. 
But when he gave up the information, he, when he betrayed himself, he violated the last aspect of his vow that he had not yet violated, that Nazarite vow that said he could never shave his head, that he could never drink uh, from the fruit of the vine, that, that he could never touch an unclean thing. This was the last aspect of the vow that he had not yet violated. And so here he was, betraying himself that his hair might be cut so for all his strength, Samson was unable to gain mastery over his own lust, unable to endure the wearing down of his own resolve. And as a result, he suffered the consequences of his own self-betrayal. And finally, we see his weakness in his own self-destruction. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Well, call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the pr- prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on the one and his left on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtoal in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. Samson's end is one of great tragedy. In my studies this week, I encountered a commentary who who suggested that Samson is a type of Christ here because he sacrificed himself for his people. But that's not how the text presents it. That is not how the text presents his actions at all. And, And really, if... To me, when I hear that kind of, uh, of approach, it, it sounds more like the, the windy city spin than anything else because the text says that Samson cried out and asked for strength, not so that he could judge the Philistines, not so that he could be delivering his people from the Philistines, but so that he could avenge his own two eyes. Even in his death, Samson was a self-directed man who cared little for others and sought his own interests. Now, God clearly used Samson to accomplish his purposes. There's no doubt about that. 
But it's not because Samson is this great hero. He's presented as anything but. The one redeeming aspect of his life at the end was that he finally recognized where the source of his strength was. It was the Lord's supernatural work in his life brought about to accomplish God's divine purposes. But in so many ways, Samson stands for us as the epitome of a judge who has become thoroughly canonized, thoroughly like the world around him, self-directed. He was exploitative, deceptive, vengeful. And all of these things eventually led to his own self-destruction. As we study this text and as we've gone through the story, I've, I feel like I've not really said very much by way of positive things about the life of Samson. It's, it's been very much of a negative approach. As someone might ask, well, what about, what about the hall of faith? Hebrews 11, right? Samson's listed there, right? Let's, let's turn there briefly for a moment. Because even as we've moved through this book of Judges, we see there are several names from Judges that appear in this, what is known as the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And sometimes we can look at that and we might conclude things that the, that the text doesn't tell us. But we have this example for us in Hebrews 11, and I'm going to pick things up in verse 32. Where the, Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrew says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. <coughs> As we look at that, these texts tell us that these men are heroes of faith. After all, their names are written in the hall of faith in Hebrews. Well, if we read the text carefully, we see that this text tells us that when the, they were engaged in these activities, they certainly were trusting in God in those moments. When they were putting foreign armies to flight, when they became mighty in war and made strong out of weakness, they were certainly trusting God in, in, for the strength to accomplish those feats. In those moments, certainly indeed, they did have faith that God would help them, and God did. He was faithful to His covenant promise to His people. But these verses hardly make these individuals out to be heroes or examples of faith in every area of their lives. So though we recognize that they had moments of faith within their lives when they accomplished these actions, that does not mean that they are to be held up as these giants, as these heroes and examples to follow after. That takes the text of Hebrews beyond what it actually says. And so here we are at the end of Judges 16. The end of the life of Samson, but not only the life of Samson, but that's our last judge within the book of Judges. And we have several more chapters to go, but that's the, that's, he's the final judge in the book. What do we walk away with today? I have four concluding thoughts here this morning. 
As far as judges go, Samson was, again, the last of the book, and he is, again, a picture of what happens when the canonization of God's people affects not just the lay people, but also the leaders. Samson was a man who exploited others for the sake of his own benefits. He was self-directed. Second, we continue to see the need for a real king. And again, we're not talking about guys like David or, or Solomon or these other, these other great kings of, of the nation of Israel. No, we're talking about the real king that we need is Jesus Christ. Samson's weaknesses and our own, the author wants us to see us what we are like without the direction of the king of kings. It is only through faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that we have the strength to conquer our fleshly weaknesses. Third, so often we tell the story and we act like, again, he is this great hero. Look how strong he is. Look what God did for him. Maybe you can be a Samson too. But having gone through this text, perhaps it would be wise to consider that a warning rather than a wish. Being like Samson is not something we should strive to be. The book of James makes it clear for us that each of us, when we are tempted, we are tempted by our own sinful desires within our own hearts. And when that, when that, when that sin is, uh, and that temptation is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin brings about death. That's James chapter 1, verses 13 and 15. And the only solution is through the grace of of Jesus Christ. He alone can break the cycle of sin, and He can provide the true rescue that our souls need. And finally, (coughs) even though Samson stands as yet another example of, of the failures of Israel, God's graciousness is still on full display. God's grace to Samson and to all the Hebrews, it cannot be overstated. Though they continue to pursue their own way, God is faithful to His covenant people, and He will be faithful to us if we have faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we think about the life of Samson and the the warnings that we see present within his own life, we also can see the graciousness of our God and His faithfulness to His people. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that You are gracious to us. Lord, that even though we we all sin in many ways, we all stumble in many ways, there is Your grace to overcome, Your grace to conquer, your grace to save and to rescue. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen each and every one of us in our inner being, that we would know you, that we would know what is the height and the depth and the breadth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and that as we see your great love and your great care for us, Lord, that that would direct us to strive to know you more and more, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would strengthen us for this walk on this earth, that we may forsake the way of sin, that we would forsake the way of of dabbling in temptation, 
that we would remove ourselves from compromising situations, but Lord, that we can look to You and Your strength within our very beings. Thank You. We praise You for Your Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we close in our final song this morning.